Welcome to Hope and Heresy, Life on the Religious Left, where we wrestle with contemporary issues using history and theology as our guides. Our task is to reclaim religion for everyday people who want to live meaningfully without letting arbitrary doctrine or oppressive religious practice prevent us from asking big questions about our complicated world. I'm Reverend Sarah Lindsay. And I'm Reverend Peggy Clark, and we're Unitarian Universalist Ministers broadcasting from Community Church of New York here in New York City. It is the Friday after the 2020 election. So we're just, what is it, three days out? It feels like it's been a year. Um, oh. Right? Three days out? I, uh, I feel like I haven't slept in a very long time. Um, so yeah, so we're in this weird moment where it's three days out from election day and we still don't know who is the next president of the United States of America. And just before we started to record, they were um, showing that Biden has like edged out Trump in a couple more uh, states. So, you know, things are, are looking like they're going one direction, but we just won't know until every ballot is counted. Um, so last week we recorded sort of on the eve of the election, sort of in advance of it. And now we're, we were thinking maybe we'd be able to record a post-election podcast. And instead we're recording a in the middle of an election podcast. Yeah. And it's getting kind of crazy out there too. I mean, there's, the longer this takes, the more the tension rises. People are on the edges of their seats. I'm not sure how many people are doing anything other than just obsessively watching and reading the news. I, I was just reading uh, this morning in the New York Times about this Facebook group that I think was called Stop the Steal. And it started on Wednesday and it just boomed to like, 320,000 people in 24 hours. And it was all about how the Democrats are stealing the election. People are like, the anxiety is so high and there's such misinformation going out. And because of all the misinformation and all the, um, the sort of inherent tension and division in our country in these last few years and the you know, we were sort of ready to ignite, and we've been saying this. I mean, this we're we've been living in this um, this high anxiety space. So for a group like that to be able to form and to have space to really say what they're thinking, and then apparently it moved out onto the streets. So that yesterday we saw different kinds of protests, people really, you know, on. Uh, outside of, of counting centers, trying to get in. And it's been um, really intense. And Facebook took that group down after 24 hours, that it was, um, that they were inciting violence and that this is disinformation, that we, we can't be saying that the Democrats are stealing an election when all people are trying to do is, is count votes. But that's, that's where we are right now. Well, and, and it's where we are at sort of the highest office in the land, right? The, the president himself came out yesterday 
and said, I won and it's being stolen and like, and a bunch of major news outlets refused to air the entire speech, right? So we're at, we're at a very strange place that the United States has never been in where the president himself is spreading propaganda and lies and disinformation. And what, what I have sort of been saying, you know, with my congregants and others this week is what I find most challenging is the knowledge that like, not that small a minority of the country believes and like eats up those lies and disinformation, right? And like, just trying to wrap my head around two things, right? Like one is, where did that divide? Like, where does this come from sort of historically and, and how do we understand it? But then also like, what do we do about it, right? Um, and that's that's where I've been the last few days is sort of like, holding my like excitement that maybe Biden will eke out a win and feeling you know that that will be really good and important. But even with that win, like there's a lot of, I feel like for me at least, a lot of grief around the knowledge that so many people were okay with what's been happening the last four years, right? And are okay with propaganda and lies. And it's hard to hold all that together. Well, they don't seem to be able to tell the difference. And we, some of what's happening is, you know, not just that we're divided in terms of what we believe. See, I think we can actually, I think we could get over that. Yeah. I think that what's happening though, isn't about that. It's really that we are, we're being fed such different information and we're living in narratives that are so completely different that it's really difficult to, to just even speak to each other. I mean, it's, you know, it's yeah. that feeling like this is a different language. You know, I say, you know, please pass the salt. And you say, why did you say that about my mother? I, you know, I just I feel like what, what world are we living in? <laughs> It's so true, right? And like, we also just posted, I mean, this has taken a backseat to everything else, but the US just posted two of our, like the two top days of positive COVID testing, right? Like 100,000 and 120,000, right? And the bulk of those are in states that majority went to the president, right? So in those states where people are getting the most sick right now, there's still this belief. So that, that question of two realities, right? This belief that like masks don't matter or the president's right and we're turning a corner. And I'm like, and literally you all are posting the highest numbers right now. So yeah, it definitely feels like there's this weird, um, yeah, like two realities, like a tale of two Americas, not to do that, but I just did it. You know, like it's a very strange moment. Yeah, I mean, there's, um... The podcast, the New York Times podcast, The Field, did a really interesting um, piece on two people running in some North Wisconsin area. And, and one of them was, um, and they're both owned restaurants and they live in the same tiny little town. And the narratives that they're both living in are so completely different around COVID. So that one of them, one of them, shut down, right? I mean, there was a positive case and he closed for four days in the busiest season and he requires masks and right, he's doing a lot of what we see in New York. And the other guy has had lots of COVID cases, including um, a death of an employee's husband. She got sick, he got sick, lots of people have gotten really sick. And yet he was like, 
you know, it's all about individual choice and people need to be able to make choices about their own lives and they come here because they need to relax and they have fun and there are risks and everyone knows what risks are, but, you know, I have, I, I have payroll and people need to make a living, which is also valid, right? People need to make a living. But it was so completely the same tiny little town, two different restaurant owners, both running for office on the same idea of, you know, this is our reality. And one is saying we need to prioritize the science and people's health. And one is saying we need to prioritize lifestyle and ability to pay our bills and how we live. And in some way, both of those things make some sense, right? Except that the priorities are so different. It feels like, how are we, how are we ever gonna be able to speak to each other? If yeah. you know, we can't agree on basic things like human life is more important. Yeah, so that's, so you, you mentioned that one of those guys was talking about like, sort of individual choice and and each person should get to decide for themselves, right? And so I think back to our, our last conversation around like the enlightenment and what it sort of did for culture and society and sort of the, the West uh, and this idea. So what I've been thinking about, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw it out there and then we can debate it, but um, I've been thinking about this question of what did we exactly inherit from the enlightenment and what did we hang on to, right? And so it, I, it occurred to me this week that like, what we hung on to was individual choice and individual privilege and like it's my right to live my life how I want almost regardless of the impact on the collective right and what we let go of like what the enlightenment also had in it along with the reformation and sort of everything that built up to it was individual responsibility right personal responsibility to be educated and have critical reasoning skills and to apply those to religion, to life, to politics, to everything, right? That like, it feels like in some ways what's been lost from the enlightenment change is that like absolute commitment to critical thought and to like, I it, I cannot simply accept what my priest is telling me or the news or whatever. I have to use my critical reasoning skills, right? Like, I don't know, That's that is what I've been thinking a little bit about this week though. So somehow you reminded me of Descartes and the that yeah. That turn to the eye, right? And the sort of and and which was his critical reasoning skills, right? He was trying to figure out, instead of just accepting, he was trying to figure out how do I know what I know and how do I know who I am and all of those. And and he sort of silenced and he silenced all the other, you know, he silenced nature, he silenced a lot of things with this, this turn to the eye and then this, what became this hyper-individualism that we do really still see. And that is what, what started all of this. I actually, um, you know, when I think about sort of that Northwoods, Wisconsin, right? Um, on the one hand, we have the Democrat who is more communal and, uh, and the Republican who is more individualistic. But I actually think in some ways it's a failure of imagination that that we think that it's one or the other. I, I think that if the um, if we were to pull way back and rethink our economic system and say, you know, yes, the Republican is right. People do need, I mean, they do need free choice, but what he was really prioritizing was profit. They need to make money, they need their jobs, they need, he needs to be able to pay people 
he couldn't understand why someone would shut down. I mean, he said something about, you know, your own economic ruin. Like, you know, why would you choose that? But if we were to recreate our economic system so that small businesses had access to the money they needed to pay people so that they could prioritize human life, this may be a really different conversation. But instead, we keep pushing, we're pushing that hyper-individualism. We're pushing this false narrative of, you know, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and everyone is in this for themselves kind of thing. And the idea that government needs to step back when at this moment, I think maybe government needs to step up. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I, I am totally on board with you, right? Like I think the idea that somehow your choices are like become destitute or like voluntarily encourage people to like harm themselves by contracting COVID, right? Like those should not be the choices, right? I shouldn't have to choose between putting my neighbors at risk and becoming destitute, right? Like there is something in between, right? Um, and and I think there's a couple of things at work, right? Like one is we always come back to this, right? The sort of embedded greed and unchecked capitalism in America, right? Like, and all of the corporate and political machinery that goes along with that, right? Like even the idea that we have like senators who've been in the Senate for 40, 50 years, right? Like if, because when you have lawmakers whose livelihood, right, because it extends to them too, whose livelihood depends on the corporate sort of everything, right? Like they're not going to be inspired potentially, not be inspired to make change because they're too worried about losing their job. It all goes down the line, right? Like everybody does this false thing of prioritizing either money or, right? Um, but I think the other um, thing at work here, now see I've totally lost what the other thing was and I'm going to have to think for a minute well, and let it come back. But I, I think that part of what's going on, so if we were to, um, if we were able to have a conversation with people and say this and say, you know, maybe we need to rethink government, we need to rethink, I, I actually think we would get somewhere. The problem is we can't have these conversations. We're, we're having, we're, we're um, consuming such different news and we are circling ourselves with such different, you know, we're in really different echo chambers. And as a result, we can't even have this basic conversation about like what philosophically, you know, where where is it that you really, really are holding on to, or where can you be more flexible? Like, is it that the principle itself, that there's an ideology here that you can't bend on around individualism, or is it that you're really concerned that you and other people are able to feed yourselves and maybe we need to rethink that together. But we don't have this conversation. Instead, we inflame, right? And we, um, we get, so we charge each other up. So they were literally on the streets. I mean, I was on the streets on Wednesday. I, I, I was torn between protests on Wednesday. There were so many of them. So it isn't, it's not just like another side, it's both sides. Now, I feel pretty self-righteous about being on the street. I feel like on the one hand, the stuff I was organizing around protecting the results and counting every vote, that seems like basic democratic principle. What I ended up actually doing is gathering with interfaith colleagues and having a prayer service 
on Thompson, Thompson Street, right outside of Washington Square, which felt like that was, you know, healing and helpful and, and holy work that needs to be done. That all feels good to me. But I also know that I have seen people on the other side who were like, you know, but if there's fraud, why don't you want to investigate it? Why do you want to just keep going when this could all have been stolen? You know, don't you want to know? And they, they can't figure out why I would even be out on the street saying count every vote when they're feeling like, how do you know those votes are valid? Don't you want to ask the question? Which to them feels like completely reasonable conversation to have. So we're in these absolutely different worlds. The question is how yeah, I think so. This makes me think of, um, and I first learned about this whole notion through um, the work of Tim Wise, right? Who's a, a white guy that writes on like racism and white supremacy. And so he was not the first person to say this stuff, but it's where I first learned it, right? But this idea that part of what happened was um, intentionally a division was driven between poor black folks and poor white folks in order that like part of what white supremacy does, right, is keeps the people at the bottom of the economic heap from banding together and like storming the castle, right? Like, so the idea being, as long as poor white folks think that their skin color makes them better, then you're going to avoid sort of a, you know, what is it, 14th, 15th century France. My dates are always bad, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, and I think the same thing kind of applies right now, to be honest. Like, we've had the most um, like the economic, the divide, the wealth inequality divide in this country over the last three decades, right, has been shocking. Like the skyrocketing of the divide and the total decimation of the middle class has been insane in the last generation, right? And I think that part of what we're experiencing right now is exactly that same kind of division intentionally created, right, with lies and propaganda and disinformation between folks who, if they actually looked at each other and went, all of us are the ones who are struggling and are having to choose between, you know, economic ruin or COVID death, right? If, if all of us could look at each other and say, you know, we are actually in fact being manipulated by, you know, through corporate tools and, and whatever, then that would totally change the conversation. But everyone is so dug in to, and I feel quite self-righteous about where I'm dug into too, like, to be honest. Um, but like that, I, I think that's part of the problem is that there is this, um, and yeah, how do you talk across that? How do you talk across a divide that has been so um, wielded so effectively, right? By, by the, the top of the heap, whether it's politically or economically. Um, like I think about the, the, the ways that like McConnell or Graham have like the, the hypocrisy, the like in, inciting, like even just this week, right? Trump's sons are like on Twitter being like, where's the GOP? Why aren't you supporting us? And all they have to do is say that and not all of them, but a handful of them jump too and are like fraud, stealing of election. I'm like this is not how democracy is meant to work, right? Like, yeah, but, but yeah, how do, you, how do you move forward, right? So the question posed to us, <coughs> as ministers is you know who who is in our pastoral care and, and for me pastoral care is an individual thing right the my congregants but it's also about the world how is it that i care for the world yeah i understand myself to be chaplain to 
far more than just the people who are sitting right in front of me. I understand this um, as an us and them, right? And I understand that they there's this sort of evil, this um, right separation of children at the border. Like there's something that's truly gruesome going on. And yet the question for me is, do I do I have to provide a pastoral response? Do I have to? Is it? Am I called to? taking to the streets and taking a side, or am I called to some kind of reconciliation? Like if, and I think we've talked about sort of what is your sense of God? And since my sense of God is that God, that we are God, that we all participate in the divine mystery, that we all are part of the embodiment of God, even those people who are inciting violence are part of that. So then what is it that I am called to do? So this this is an interesting, I remember just a few years ago, right? And maybe it's more than a few, time is funny. Um, but when we really started like being encouraged as, as ministers in our denomination to really speak to white supremacy in our congregations and really try to like do the work of dismantling. And for the longest time, I would sort of like, I would say to myself, like, I have to walk this line because I have in my congregations, I don't, I'm not necessarily talking about my current one, but I have, you know, older white folks, primarily men who like are really find this conversation hard. And my job is to like bring them along and like help them see. And like, I have to be honest, I've gotten to a place where I'm a bit like, there's a part of me that's like, some people just won't be brought along. Like yeah. some people just won't. And and I go back, you know, weirdly, cause I don't always go back to scripture, but I go back to write all of the, the sort of um, the uses of the promised land and thinking about this, right? Some people won't make it either because they choose not to or because they just won't live to see it, right? Because I mean, you and I won't either, right? But, but the idea that like, there just are some people who don't want to come along for the ride. And if we stay trying to pull and trying to pull and trying to pull, we, we might stop the forward motion, right? And it's not that I'm saying those people don't have God in them. It's not that I'm saying that they're lost forever. Like, I don't believe in hell. That's not, but I, I believe in the divinity that's present in everyone, but I also believe in the human capacity to sin and the human capacity to to sort of deny your inherent divinity and choose the wrong path, right? Like that, that humans have free will to make those kinds of choices. So I, I totally, you and I are on the same page on this question of like where the holy moves and, it, and it's through all of us, but, but the human capacity to refuse to live it or acknowledge it for me feels real. And it, and it doesn't mean those people are condemned to hell forever. It means eventually that part of who they are comes out, but maybe not in this lifetime, right? Like, uh-huh. That's actually a conversation that um, we have on my ministry team lately about, I sort of fall on the side of some people are going to leave, or we're going to work on decentering whiteness, and some people are going to, they're going to go, they're not going to be comfortable anymore, they're not going to understand the language of it, it's not going to feel like home, and they're going to go, and I'm okay with it, and and not everyone on the team is. There's another opinion of, which isn't, which in no way is about racial justice. It's not, we shouldn't be centering this work. It's really, we need to bring everybody along and everybody is going to stay. And it hasn't ever been my experience that 
people just stay. <laughs> I mean, I that people stay in conversations that are difficult or if they have a choice, that often they leave. But when I think about what's happening in the world right now, you know, I, I feel like what's happening in the country in part is all of those people who have been pushed out, all the people who are feeling like the country is moving without them. And this is the the backlash of that. This and when I think in a tiny system, right, in a congregational system, when somebody is feeling pushed out, they often act out in ways that are really inappropriate to try and take down the system. And I, it feels like that's what's happening just on a national scale. Like, we don't like what you're doing, so we're, you know, we're going to explode out on the streets and we're going to take you down. Go ahead. It's really, that's really astute, Piggy. And when I think about like, well, so what do we do? Right. In a congregation, I I will call someone and I'll be like, hey, what's up? Like, let's talk it out. And then I'll be like, and you can't do that thing. Right. So like, so maybe that gets applied to the nation. Right. And there's a little bit of like, you know, hey, let's take a pause. Tell me what you're feeling. But also you can't be a neo-Nazi. Right. Like there's a, there are limits to what kind of, and that's why I'm not saying like write off anybody who voted for Trump, but I am saying there, we have to agree on like basic sort of rules of engagement to be a democracy, right? And like, that was one of the biggest fears about this election for me. And I, I think for you as well was like the creeping authoritarianism is no joke. And like how this goes down, right? How the vote happens and what happens in the next month or two says a lot about the strength of the American experiment and whether or not American democracy is capable of surviving like the attempts of petty tyrants, right? Um, but there have to be rules. There, it, it isn't a free for all. It isn't just personal responsibility, right? Um, but I do, I do come back to um, what you lifted up early on, which is when there's such a difference. Like when I orient myself around, I'm going to vote and I'm going to live and I'm going to think and I'm going to, you know, be in the world, privileging community right, and insisting that my behaviors don't impede other people's right to life and liberty, and other people are going to live in the world, think in the world, believe in the world in a way that says my right to individual decisions and liberty and life is more important than anyone else's. Like, that's, that I think is built in theology, and I don't know how to bridge that particular, you know, I don't know how to bridge that particular thing. But we're gonna have to learn. We're gonna have to find out, right? I mean, yeah. this is the, this is the task. It almost feels like this is the American task of the last 400 years. Yeah. But this is its current context. And maybe this is what we'll talk about next week. Maybe we'll have a, we'll get closer <laughs> to what we think, how we're gonna be doing this. It's been really good to talk to you. Like every night I'm like, go to bed, go to bed. And then I never go to bed. And I watch the returns as late as I can manage. But, you know. I think our, our moment of hope is um, that people are actively engaged, right? Everyone is watching, everyone is paying attention. I think that's a good thing. In some ways we are a more active democracy right now and in the last few weeks and we have been in a really long time 
So, I mean, 150 million people voted. That's 50 percent of the of the entire population, including, you know, children and people who aren't eligible. So that's that's a huge percentage. Yeah, I'm totally waiting to see what it ends up being, the percentage of the eligible voters, right? See how we did and turn out, turn out this time around. Um, but I do agree with you, yeah. And, and also so many first time voters, right? And young voters. And I think all of that is, yes, very hopeful. And we shall see. All right, looking forward to talking to you yeah. next week. Hopefully by then we'll know. <laughs> <laughs> okay.